welcome again to our COP28 series, part of our Grant Thornton's Financial Services Risk and Regulation and Travel podcast. To wrap up the series for our last episode, today I'm delighted to be joined by Eric Usher, who is the head of the United Nations Environment Programs Finance Initiative. Eric oversees the governance, strategy and day-to-day management of UNEPFI's work program and global network development. He also sits on several industry bodies, including as UN representative on the board of the Principles for Responsible Investment and as a member of the governing boards of the Sustainable Stock Exchanges Initiative, the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, the Investor Agenda and the Impact Fund at Rep Africa. Thank you for joining me today, Eric. It is only most appropriate that we are closing our series on, on an UN summit with a representative from the UN. Thank you very much for sparing the time. I know how busy you are. My pleasure to be with you today. Um, just before we dive into the conversation, Eric, can you just tell us a little bit more about the UNEP's finance initiative and the role it plays into the global conversation on sustainable finance? Well, sure. So uh, UNEP-FI, as we say, has been around for quite some time. It was created during the uh, Rio Earth Summit, so in 1992, so we're a little over 30 years old. Um, and we've been um, contributing to or behind the evolution of, of the notion of sustainable finance, essentially establishing the frameworks for responsible conduct within um, different parts of the finance industry. So uh, in uh, 2006, um, we established the Principles of Responsible Investment, the PRI. Um, which now has its headquarters in London, but uh, I'm pleased to, to sit on the board. And then since then, we've uh, had the principle of sustainable insurance established in 2012 and the principle of responsible banking 2019. So these are the broad industry frameworks um, uh, which sort of provide the umbrella for the approach initially to ESG integration. So really from a risk perspective, but increasingly post 2015 when the the the, uh, paris climate agreement and the un sdgs were were signed and established um this notion of sustainability as a means to align with societal objectives such as um addressing global climate change so essentially what is the role of a financial actor in aligning with society's needs, um, getting to to net zero. It's not only about um, taking capital away from high carbon intensive sectors, but it's also where do we want to drive capital towards? So it's both greening finance, but also financing the green. Yeah, an incredibly important role given the finance that we all need to achieve actually all these climate goals as as we know. And I know you were at the heart of a lot of the COP28 negotiations this year, of course, as you'd expect. Um, we have managed to eventually conclude the summit with somewhat uh, successful agreement. How big of a success was that, though, in your perspective? I mean, I think we, um, of course, um, you know, uh, people have a lot of expectations and, and it certainly did not meet all the expectations of of, uh, all the stakeholders involved. But I think in terms of in the bigger picture and understanding how these um, COPs and this process functions um, uh, and and the fact that it is is essentially a bottom-up approach to to countries, what what are called parties to the convention, setting objectives. So, um, and um, essentially, all parties to the convention setting um, objectives and then over time totaling up what all these commitments add up to and what happened here in in um, 
in Dubai for the first time is what's called the global stock take, which was uh, it's, it's supposed to happen every five years after the Paris Agreement was signed. It was delayed because of COVID, but essentially every five years you add up all of these country commitments and then you say, okay, how far are we towards meeting the objectives? And if we're falling short, then let's do a new round of ratcheting of ambition. And so I think within that context um, of a bottom-up approach, progress was made and, and you know, ambition is raised. And, uh, you know, in terms of the final agreement and particularly text around the global stock take, um, the notion of having, well, for the first time, fossil fuels actually being specifically addressed in the agreement is an important step forward. Is it enough to, to stabilize uh, global emissions to keep us on a 1.5 trajectory? No, it's not. Um, is it a step in that direction? Yes, clearly it is. Yeah, and a lot of the conversation at this COP, as we would have thought actually, was focused on transition finance and, and net zero and as you said, the stock take um, subjects that are central to, to the work you do at the UNFFI as well. What are the next steps following on to this COP in your view so that we actually have a feasible, um, tangible transition pathway to actually start delivering on those goals that we're talking about? Yeah, so I mean, one aspect of the structure of, of the Paris Agreement, once again, it's it's bottom up, but it also relies significantly on the combination of, of country action, but also um, other voluntary action coming from um, uh, industry, coming from um, um, other aspects of, of society, civil society and the like. We within UNEPFI were very much involved in uh, what's called GFANS, which is the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which was um, launched by Mark Carney um, at the Glasgow COP two years ago. Um, we, uh, under that, that's a, it's a, a grouping of, you call them coalitions of the willing or what you will, in terms of groupings within the financial sector who are working on net zero. Uh, there are um, nine alliances. Uh, we manage four of them, including the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, which was the first. It actually predates uh, GFANS. Um, so it's a group of asset owners. Um, uh, the Net Zero Banking Alliance, which is by most measures, the largest and most global of the alliances, including all uh, or most uh, globally systemically important banks, the GSIBs, um, but totaling about 41% of global banking assets. Um, uh, then it's your insurance alliance. And actually at now in Dubai, we launched our latest GFANS alliance, which is Net Zero Export Credit Agencies Alliance. So we're starting to get more specialized, particularly here in terms of trade finance. I think, um, most of these alliances, when you add them, all of the GFANS actors up, you have over 500 institutions who have set targets. Um, and I don't want to say that's the easy part, but that's the first step. I think where to from here, it's really about how do you deliver on um, um, uh, emissions reduction, essentially on implementing these targets. And this applies to countries. And the, the formal COP process has, as I explained earlier, about um, setting objectives and then you, you add up where everyone is at within the global stock take and then you say what more ambition is needed. And we essentially have similar processes now uh, coming from the private sector side. Um, and I think this is why the, the wording in, the, in the, the finally agreed text around transitioning um, uh, away from fossil fuels uh, within the energy sector is so important because as Mark Carney 
himself has said, you know, investing in renewables and divesting from coal is the easy part. Um, the real challenge is everything else in between, essentially, you know, what he's also called the 50 shades of green. So how do you transition um, market incumbents? How do you transition industries um, away from carbon intensive activities and business models? And and they're, 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 the real work in terms of the implementation is how do you get the methodologies, how you do that? Everybody understands the notion of a carbon footprint. You know, I have an existing business that has an existing footprint. That's that's fine. That's good. But knowing your footprint doesn't tell you that much about the future. And so then the idea of transitioning, transition plans, transition finance, all of that are the tools that you need to actually move an economy in in this low carbon direction. And I think once again, that's why the headline wording in the COP is useful. But the devil is in detail and that, that now lies on the responsibility of the different market actors, regulators, policymakers, industry, finance, to basically say, okay, well, how do we move the economy in this direction? What are the tools that we need for that? And, and that's really where the work is going to be happening uh, now. It got started, but I think um, what happened in Dubai gave it, has given it a push in the right direction. Yeah, and that, that sounds positive. I guess where we're finding ourselves quite often, unfortunately, in this kind of process, and we saw it in Dubai with the negotiations being so sort of uh, tense and until the very last minute looking really not very positive. Did, are you, do you have the feeling that we sort of make some sort of a one step progress ahead and then almost we we have two steps backwards uh, or do you think we are actually are making um, meaningful real progress and all the initiatives you mentioned in terms of the industry bodies for example I can see their role of course as we got you saying driving the, the pathway forward but are we really moving forward is perhaps my yeah. real question yeah I mean I, I would turn around and suggest it's two steps forward one steps back you know, in the sense of, I do believe we're making process uh, progress. Um, however, there are challenges. And I guess the most important thing is, uh, I believe the transition has started, but it's definitely not fast enough to be in time to 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 stabilize global climate, um, you know, below 1.5 degrees of warming. And so, and it begs the question, well, whose job is it to correct that and and the unfortunate reality is it's everyone's job you know essentially there's not one solution yes we <clears throat> probably need more on the regulatory front but regulators have a hard time moving unless the private sector is actually already at least parts of the private sector are, are pointing in the right direction and showing how to do it and so we need this sort of ratcheting up of ambition between voluntary leadership from you know coalitions of the willing as we can say um and the regulatory response to then say okay well how do we take what is leadership today and make it mainstream tomorrow and um uh there's been progress made and for instance if you look at the net zero banking alliance the these global banks they are um uh, really ratcheting up their financing of low carbon, so renewable energies, um, electric vehicles, you know, you really see the numbers moving up very, very, uh, you know, quite quickly. Um, they are uh, on the high carbon side, they are um, more cautious 
although they aren't moving away as fast as many would would think is needed um, based on the science. So these are these are positive trends. The the main challenge is that it's not at the speed and scale it's needed. So I think and the question is, well, how do you how do you get there? And uh, I think part of what the leaders will point out over time is to say, we believe it's in our interest to be leading this transition because we see this as a huge economic um, turnover in the economy. And there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of role um, for ourselves as financial leaders. But the problem is if we're divesting from high carbon offsets in a way that others are just picking them up, you know, those, let's say, in the private markets who maybe have less exposure to, to external pressures, you know, in terms of global climate, we're not changing anything. And so the, the relationship between leadership from industry and, and regulatory um, pressure to make this um, business as usual, we need to get that right. And we're still in very early days there, even if regulators are doing it, have made very important steps in recent years and are um, uh, you know, doing really important things, it's not fast enough. Yeah, and you sort of perhaps picked up slightly on what my next question would have been, which is where the effort should be in terms of, I guess, policy making and frameworks to, to your point that we don't only need the large global fossil fuel banks, if you want to call them this way, to sort of divest and actually lead the way. But we sort of need, as you say, external pressure so that everybody transitions. So how do you think, um, how do you, or where do you think we are in terms of policy change? And, and perhaps any insight that you can share from the conversations you had at COP in terms of, was it sort of any political will discussed to make this progress happen and have this kind of policy reform across the board? Yeah. So, I mean, and I mean, going back to Glasgow two years ago, um, you know, the, the, the there were many important developments there, um, including the establishment of the, of the International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB, under the IFRS Foundation, um, so that um, sustainability disclosures will become, you know, mainstream practice. So that's a very important step. Um, I think also the UK government establishing the um, um, the notion of transition plans. And I think to your question, you know, and, and also to the COP outcome here in Dubai, the notion of the transition um, needs to be understood. And, and essentially, um, regulators need to start expecting that all companies um, need to have a transition plan. All um, financial actors need to have a transition plan, which is an aggregate of the, the portfolio of the companies they, they hold or they, they lend to. So I think, once again, this is why the wording in the, in the text in Dubai is so important. Um, and regulators have made a lot of progress in terms of um, disclosure uh, expectations. Um, but those, in, in many cases, those need to go further. And um, once again, if the disclosures is, is only capturing the, um, the snapshot of the footprint emissions, uh, carbon footprint today, it doesn't give you a good lens on understanding the future. If those disclosure requirements require you to, to provide information around the, the um, transition plan of the company, which essentially is the strategy of the company, now you start to actually have a forward-looking um, view. And this is where you get a much more a dynamic engagement um, uh, of, of the economy is that whether it's changing. And it can come in many different ways. Within the EU, you have the, um, the taxonomy, um, sustainable finance taxonomy, and we start to see 
um, numbers um, being reported against the taxonomy. And it does actually start to give you an interesting view. And, and um, um, we start to have large companies in Europe who are reporting. And, and um, uh, for instance, they have to report their um, how much of their revenues are sustainability aligned. So essentially are, are coming from sustainable economic activities. Um, but they also have to report how much of their CapEx um, is sustainability alliance and capex is a very interesting metric because it tells you something about the future and 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 this is um, the taxonomy is embedded within the csrd the the um, corporate sustainability reporting directive and and um, shortly you know the, the the most of the european economy will need to be reporting and essentially giving this forward-looking metric around capex so um, there are different ways that regulators can start to require market actors to be um, uh, providing information to the market that allows the market to steer forward. Picking up on, on that point around regulators, Eric, uh, obviously the UK and the EU, as mentioned, uh, have made already significant steps. How far do you think, though, are the regulators and the policymakers in, in the Americas, for example, or in Asia, as we know, and as you said, it's sort of a the, the global footprint we're talking here. And if you actually make um, an effort, it has to be global and sort of coordinated. Do you feel from what you've seen here in Dubai, do you feel that the, the uh, effort is coordinated enough? I mean, there are always calls for more coordination and this wonky term uh, interoperability. Um, and I think one of the benefits of at least the programs we're involved with are, are are global. So when we have these voluntary initiatives like under GFANS, these net zero banking lines and like they're global, so they're coming up with global frameworks over time eventually because um, those will get embedded within national or regional legislation or regulations. And obviously the hope is that there will be as as similar as possible. But we have to also appreciate, of course, is that you know local jurisdictions are different for for very good reasons your local context is different and so uh but i think there's still a way for um national regulators to learn from what's going on elsewhere and there are important uh, means for them to learn there's for instance in the banking sector you have the um um um, the network for greening the financial system, which is the NGFS, which includes over 100 banking regulators who do share essentially best practice and they come up with common scenarios. And they, they um, so we do see a lot of efforts to say, how do we get um, a, as similar as possible systems so that they are interoperable? Um, I mean, one of the interesting complicated dynamics of, I mentioned the CSRD in Europe, is that a lot of non-European Corporates will need to report, you know, including yeah. from North America. Extraterritorial scope, <laughs> exactly. <of> regulators. <laughs> exactly, and and that is a source of a lot of consternation. Um, but it does, um, you know, it does help drive convergence over time. Um, in in the U.S., you have the SEC and their um, new disclosure requirements, where they're a little bit stuck and they're still unsure when they'll get finalized and um, i think it's quite clear that scope three emissions will probably not be included at this stage now they still are groundbreaking in other ways so i think that they are very good um, um, but um, in the u.s context you have california who does require scope three 
reporting. And in a similar way to Europe, um, you know, many American actors will um, be, you know, partially regulated by what goes on in California. And uh, as we know, um, you know, leading jurisdictions often have a lot of influence through their market um, scale in influence uptake uh, elsewhere. So um, it is a global map. Um, you have uh, a lot is happening in Asia today um, and um, uh, places like in Japan. Um, it's moving quite quickly in uh, Japanese. They, they have been coming out with um, sectoral transition pathways you know, from the government side, basically saying in the cement industry, this is how we see um, it transitioning to to net zero and, and in steel and in agriculture, which is quite useful for investors because they can start to take these pathways and they can benchmark their 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 companies against and basically saying, are you leading? Are you a leader or a laggard on this pathway? If you're a leader, we we know you're going to need a lot of capital to do that, and therefore, you know, we we want to be your your you know your partner. If you're a laggard, maybe there's an increased credit risk if we're a lender to you, and maybe we need to start um, looking more carefully on what your plans are, and maybe starting to put some some pressure on, um, or eventually maybe we need to move away from that sort of asset because we believe it's an increased uh, um, a risk to our portfolio. So we, we do see a lot of developments, um, China as well. Um, China is not um, 2050 aligned. They, they, President Xi has set 2060 as their net zero objective. Um, but besides that, they are moving very quickly. And, um, uh, you know, they're, they're including the fund and financial community. We work a lot with Chinese banks and um, they, um, they are very am ambitious. And not only in areas like renewables, where, you know, China is by far the largest uh, uh, market for renewables today, but also in places like green steel, uh, low carbon cement, and and um, you know they they are seeing this very much as as uh, a transition that they are want to be part of and lead in in many ways. So it is it is global, and I think for any economic actor, um, uh, they should see it this way. This is not something which is going to be uh, jurisdiction specific, even if there will be specificities around every jurisdiction. Yeah, and that sounds very positive. I think, as you, as you mentioned at the start, it's just now a question of pace and scale and just making sure that we sort of um, make the acceleration happen as it should. And I guess sort of linked to that, my, my last question for you, and, and thank you again for your time, is um, what do you think are the most critical steps between this COP, let's say, and the next one, for example, so to make sure that the momentum we've gained actually continues? And within that, I guess, what is the focus of the UNEP-FI as well? Yeah, so let me point out two additional areas um, um, within the COP. Um, one is on in terms of global equity and the relationship between the global north and the global south and the, that's around the topic of loss and damage yeah. um, and the second one is around uh, the role of the carbon markets so um, in terms of loss and damage um, and a lot of um, respect to the the emiratis the the, the uae um, and for uh, presiding over this cop and doing a lot of preparatory work to the extent that it's historically it's never happened before that the COP, the, the Conference of Parties has actually taken a decision on the first day uh, of a COP and they did, this was done in Dubai, which was the agreement to establish the loss and damage fund. That's an incredibly important uh, step. 
because it implies that developed countries are taking responsibility to help developing countries respond to, to climate impacts. And that's something that they've been calling for for decades and for many years was put off to say we can't be liable for what happens you know, when there's there's a, a storm, when there's a drought, when there's a, um, a forest fires, et cetera, um, in, in, in a developing country. Now they've acknowledged that, yes, you know, pouring carbon into the atmosphere since industrialization, that there is some responsibility to help countries who actually had no role in, in establishing the problem in helping them respond to the impacts. Now, so creating that fund was very, very important. Now, granted, the pledges to the fund are still far. Yeah. I think there were about Me 700, <laughs> yeah, 700 million dollars. Yeah. You know, there will be tens of billions needed at least um, to play any role. So it's very, very, um, um, you know, it's, it, but but the the they've established the mechanism to do that. And so that's very, very important. And I think that helped in terms of the, the to build the trust uh, between countries going into uh, the negotiations in, in Dubai. I think one of the things um, that uh, market actors will speak to as they start to think, particularly around scope three and supply chains, um, is the notion that it's very hard to um, deal with all, particularly hard to abate sectors without um, some use of, of carbon um, crediting, yeah. um, offsetting. Um, now, there's a lot of controversy around carbon, and, and I think everybody should acknowledge that the, the current you know, carbon trading has had a lot of drawbacks and that, that fixes are needed. Um, but this is why what's called Article 6, and particularly Article 6.2, which is the mechanism for how countries can do bilateral arrangements for essentially carbon um, uh, trading in a, in a, of a form that that was is was hoped to be agreed in Dubai and it wasn't. It's it's a very technical discussion and unfortunately it will go now on to the next COP to continue um, and we hope that they will make progress there. Our view from UNEPFI and the alliances we manage is that carbon is not the place to start. The place to start is how do you um, you know reduce emissions in your business or the businesses that you finance but that we do acknowledge that some businesses, let's say by 2050, it'll be very hard to get their business to total net zero. Global aviation would be an example. And therefore, there might need to be some recourse to, to the carbon markets. Um, but those carbon markets are not functioning appropriately today. So we need more investment in, in at a political level to establish them. Um, and um, uh, that that's an area where where much more work will be done. It's, you know, I think we have to acknowledge there's a lot of complaints about the COP process. There's been complaints since COP1. Um, and I think one of the questions is for people who are complaining, you know, let's, let's propose how to do it better because um, there have been a lot of efforts to say, how do you improve? But there's a lot of power and there's a lot of buy-in to the, to the current system. Um, and although it's tedious and it's slow moving, um, it has allowed countries, and, and particularly with the success of the Paris Agreement and this more bottom-up approach, allows countries to come in and work on essentially dealing with these global commons, these issues that no one country can solve on their own. You have to do it together. And I, I do believe that um, in Dubai, we saw progress made. I think we have to acknowledge that you know, decarbonizing 
the, the, the global economy is not something that is done simply. It's not something that any one innovator or, or regulator um, uh, can do on their own. And therefore, uh, although painful, I think the process needs to continue. And I, I think for any market actor, it's in your interest to lean in because, you know, if you look at the science, you see the parts per million growing in the atmosphere and you know that there is going to be a policy response eventually, um, probably too late. But if it's too late when it comes, it'll be all the more brutal and therefore the potential for stranded assets and the pre the potential for economies to turn upside down will be much larger and therefore you need to act responsibly and in, in the interests of your shareholders and basically saying, how do we make sure we, we manage our risks and that we actually play a value added role in uh, enabling this transition? I think last point on fossil fuels is we have to remember it's not only about cutting off supply, it's actually the bigger challenge is how you reduce demand. And it's not possible to, with con current consumption we have of fossil fuels, to just freeze supply, you know, that, that that's economic turmoil and, and social turmoil. Um, so what we, it's not only about the oil producing countries, let's say, who need to, you know, work on reducing supply, those who are using any economy who's using fossil fuels today, you need to think about how do we lower the demand in a way that's, that manages this social and economic impacts. And so I think that the, the responsibilities lie with all governments and all economic actors. Um, let's not just simplify and say that it's in the hands of the few. Yeah, and I think you raise an extremely important point, which is, frankly, what is going to be the most difficult point is this kind of change of global mindset that we need to move away from so much consumption across the globe. Um, and that is going to take quite some time. And as you said, um, policymakers all over the world. Eric, thank you very much for joining me. Absolutely. Um, pleasure to have you. Very, very um, insightful remarks. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning into our COP28 series. Uh, it was a pleasure having you too. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you very much.